Hey everybody, it's Jim Mallard here. Welcome to the Mallard Report. The Mallard Report is recorded in front of a live virtual audience on the Duck Pond. Tuesday nights, 9 p.m. Eastern, live. Mallard.com. M-A-L-L-I-A-R-D.com. One more thing before we start. Let me turn it over to my friend that you may know from Ancient Aliens and the Curse of Oak Island and many other things. Robert Clotworthy. On the Malliard Report, the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed on the show are solely those of the hosts and guests, and not necessarily of Evergreen Podcasts, KillerPodcast.com, sponsor or affiliate, or any other individual or group. On the Malliard Report, the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in the show are solely those of the hosts and guests, and not necessarily of Evergreen Podcasts, KillerPodcast.com, sponsor or affiliate, or any other individual or group. I hope everybody is well this evening. I hope everybody took the opportunity to vote, but we're not getting political, at least not yet. My guest is re- returning guest of the, fr- the program, Mark Anthony. He is the, the, is the psychic lawyer and the psychic explorer. Mark is, is the author of the bestseller, Afterlife Frequency, Evidence of Eternity, and Never Letting Go. He is the Oxford-educated trial attorney that's licensed to practice in Florida, the Washington, D.C., and, of course, before the U.S. Supreme Court. Mark Regular appears on TV as a legal analyst, psychic medium, and expert on the paranormal. Let's welcome Mark back to the report. How are you doing tonight, Mark? I'm doing great, Jim. Uh, thanks for having me back on the Mallard Report. I always love working with you, man. We always have a great time. So let's let's dig in, because uh, you, you want to talk about King Tup, but let's, let's take the picture back broader, and then we'll focus down in as we go. Talk to me about Egyptology because that has been a that has been a thing that has um, lasted millennia. I think Egyptology is is one of my passions, and it, it's essentially it's the history of civilization. And think about it, you know, every time we talk about Egyptology, names come to mind like. Tutankhamun, Ramses the Great, Cleopatra. Then you think of pyramids and, and ancient tombs. To get an idea of how ancient Egyptian history is, people think that somehow King Tut was buried in the pyramids. And Egyptian history is is extremely long. King Tut had nothing to do with the pyramids. The pyramids were built during the Fourth Dynasty, and the fourth dynasty was almost 5,000 years ago. King Tutankhamun was a ruler of the 18th dynasty. So to get an idea of the time frames, almost as much time passed between the construction of the Great Pyramid on the Giza Plateau and the burial of Tutankhamun in the Valley of the Kings, which is far to the south of, of the pyramids. Almost as much time passed between the pyramid and King Tut, Jim, as passed between the birth of Jesus and the discovery of America by Christopher Columbus. That, That's that, a long... <laughs> as I said, that, there's some time there, Mark. It, because we, I, I guess maybe, Mark, I'll, I'll, I'll own this, right? I think of Egypt as kind of a short-run, kind of like Caesar and the Roman Empire, right? Of course, that isn't a short run either. Oh. Don't get me wrong. But, but- no, and we'll, get, we'll get get this, okay? I'm glad you brought that up. When you think of Julius Caesar, of course, he had an affair with Cleopatra and had a son with her. And between the death of Tutankhamun and the death of Cleopatra, there's another 1,300 years so Cleopatra died over 2,000 years ago. Tutankhamun died 1,300 years before her, and the Great Pyramid was almost 1,400 years before that. This is a very ancient land, and it spanned every era of, of civilization. And you're right. You know, We think of Julius Caesar, Cleopatra, and all that. And the thing is, that... But by the time Cleopatra was born, the pyramids were already extremely ancient, which blows my mind. Because you th- you know you kind of think about these things on the same page in the history book, right? 
but they're well, different, they're different books. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's how that's how it's taught. You know, it's like okay, there was ancient Egypt, uh, there was pyramids, and then King Tut, and then Cleopatra, and blah da 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 da. You know, they 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 gloss over it. But when you study Egyptology and Egyptian history, you see this in, incredible incredible uh, length of time. Um, the things that they discovered, the things that they invented. I mean, think about it. The word paper. Anyway, we all use paper. Paper comes from the Egyptian word papyrus. And papyrus uh, uh, is, is a plant that grows uh, along the Nile River. And the Egyptians used to mash it up and uh, they would... Um, then weave it together so that they could write on it. In other words, they made paper. Now, the paper that we use today is used from is made from trees which are ground up, but the the process is essentially the same. And but you know, think about it. Somebody had to come up with the idea of, gee, can we possibly um, develop something that we can write on, and then that also we can make scrolls out of, and uh, then make it very portable so that then we can keep records on things. And then, of course, there's the incredible architectural achievements of the Egyptians. When you look at the Great Pyramids on the Giza Plateau and each of the the stones that were used to make uh, the largest pyramid weigh something like five tons, what's that, 10,000 pounds? And how they were transported great distances, and and, and of course, uh, you know, because I'm on the Mallard Report, we can talk about this. Some people think aliens, um, you know, had well, something to do with this. Mark, I'm going to cop in here because I, I think you've probably even heard me say this joke before. I could go to Home Depot tonight. Of course, they're closed. I think they close at nine here. But anyways, if they were still open with all the power tools and all the wood on hand, I couldn't build the ark. <laughs> no, no, um, and, and I, you know that that cracks me up too because we hear stories of Noah's Ark. I remember though. I'm glad you brought that up too. Um, I was at an exhibit, uh, an Egyptian exhibit, and it was uh, featuring Ramses the Great. And Ramses is the most likely candidate to be the wicked Pharaoh of of Exodus. You know how. You know, we've all seen the movie The Ten Commandments where Charlton Heston, a.k.a. Moses, is let my people go. And, and Ewell Brenner, the, act, the the late, great Ewell Brenner played Ramses. Uh, I don't think anyone could have played it better. It's like, no, I will not let your people go. All right. Well, so there's this exhibit of Ramses the Great. And there were certain uh, many, many artifacts in glass cases. And there was this one and and I walked up to it, and I, it was highly unusual. It looked like a yardstick, and then upon closer inspection, it had all these hieroglyphs on it, and it was a cubit. And I'm like, whoa, this is a cubit. And all of a sudden, all these school kids, they must have been me anywhere around fifth, about fifth or sixth grade, and their teacher was saying, well, that's a cubit, that's a cubit, it's like a yardstick. And the kids were real bored, and they were like rolling their eyes, and and I said, can I try? And the teacher said, okay. I said, hey, does anyone here know the story of O's Ark? Um, and I'll never forget this little African-American boy raises his hand and goes, I do, I do. I said, do you remember in the Bible when God tells Noah to build the ark? He goes, yeah. And he said, to measure the ark and the pieces of wood in cubits, and the kid's eyes are getting bigger, and all the other kids are leaning in. And he goes, yeah. I go, well, that is a cubit. And all of a sudden, all the kids are like, whoa! And they're all like crowding around. And and the teacher was like, huh. And, and she goes, are you, are you a teacher? I said, well, no, I'm a trial lawyer. And I said, and it's part of my job is to take something that most people aren't familiar with and put it into terms that they can understand. Now, I realize that a public school teacher can't be talking about stories from the Bible and all that, but hey, I was a private citizen. I could I could use whatever examples I wanted. But the thing is, Jim, when people are studying history and trying to understand these ancient artifacts and things, we have to realize that these were objects that belonged to people. These People thousands of years ago, yes, they may be separated from us by millennia and they had customs and cultures and religions that maybe we can't really relate to. But when it comes down to it, they were people. 
They had feelings. They had families. They had good days, bad days. They had illnesses. We have much more in common with them than than one might might think. So let's get back to text. I know I've stirred us biblical and Roman. Rome's another fun thing. It, just for the love of God, can we get the Romans to design some roads for us still? I mean, anyways, sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, if you get me talking about Romans, we're going to be talking... Uh, That's a whole other show. Let's stay on uh, Egypt for right now. Uh, okay, so the Valley of Kings, that's where they, we uncovered Tut, but I, I hate to say it this way, but I'm going to say it this way. That valley was already picked over. So how, do they, how do they miss this? Well, the Valley of the Kings is what had happened is in the, in the days of the pyramids, uh, the the pharaohs of Egypt, and pharaoh means great house. And what I always liked is yes, the pharaoh was the king, but no other country used the term pharaoh. And the pharaohs' tombs were all plundered. So they, you know, when they were building these enormous, conspicuous monuments and things, and and for the sake of this discussion, we'll assume that the pyramids were royal tombs as opposed to uh, power plants, industrial things, and ports for aliens. Okay, and maybe they were, but but the in, in either event, they'd all been entered, and whatever was in there, whatever treasures and things had been looted. So over the the centuries, the the new kingdom eventually, um, excuse me, what they call the Old Kingdom, which is in the 4th, 5th, 6th dynasties of ancient Egypt. Eventually, there was a period of decline. Then there was a, a, a period known as the Middle Kingdom, where Egypt became organized again and more resurgent. But then the Middle Kingdom declined, and there was a period of disarray. But then came what is known as the New Kingdom. And the peak of New Kingdom power it was the 18th, 19th, 20th, and 21st dynasties, but the 18th dynasty was the pinnacle of Egyptian power. And that's because it went from just being a kingdom into an empire. And to conceal the, the treasures that the pharaohs were, were buried with, the priests of Egypt, the engineers of Egypt, they began uh, digging these elaborate tomb complexes um, you know in in the earth and the valley of the kings is an area where several pharaohs had been been buried and you you brought up a very important point jim by the early 20th century uh, archaeologists from europe britain france germany in particular and in the united states uh, also the the you know the the french the belgians the italians were there and and there was a rediscovery of these tombs. And what they found was these large tomb complexes with incredibly elaborate paintings. You know, every now and then they'd, they'd, they'd luck out and find maybe a piece of, of jewelry or some type of artwork statue. And it just got archaeologists' heads buzzing that, wow, what must have really been in here? And so... This is the 100th anniversary. November 4th, 1922 is the 100th anniversary of the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb. But we're going to go back a century before that to 1822. And that is the year that a French linguistics genius, his last name was Champollion, he was able to decode and decipher Egyptian hieroglyphs. Which plays an important part, but I've got to ask this question before we get into hieroglyphs because they're always important. Yeah, but we got to do that before we get into tough. Go ahead. Yeah, well, no, I want to ask the uh, the other pressing question on my mind, which is totally stupid, but I'm going to ask it because you're the guy that would know. How would uh, like me or you be buried back in the day? Would they just throw us in a hole? Well, it depended on your social status and what you could afford. Obviously, uh, the the aristocracy. Um, the pharaohs had these incredibly elaborate tombs, but several of the elaborate and complex tombs that were found in Egypt were of high priests, of generals, people of great social status. Um, one of the, the big tombs of the Old Kingdom was of Imhotep, and he was like the royal engineer, the royal architect. 
So let's say then you got to the merchant class. Well, you could be buried in in a single chamber underneath the ground, but they've also found large chambers underground with several mummies in it. So basically, let's say guys like you and me, uh, we'd be the middle class of ancient Egypt. We could be buried in a fairly um, nice um, underground tomb with several either family members, friends, or people of a similar social class. And then when you got to people who were uh, the vast majority of people who were not not wealthy, not didn't have any position, they too would be mummified. But uh, their resting site may just be a simple wooden wooden uh, coffin and essentially a hole in the ground. And mummification, the, and the process of mummification, was extremely important to the Egyptian beliefs of of the afterlife. Um, they believed that your body had to be preserved. And there were three different levels of mummification. There was basically the poor guy's uh, version where the body was dried out in salt and um, and then um, wrapped up in, in the mummy cloth and buried. Then there was the middle tier where you know, the body be marinated in palm wine and then also dehydrated in salt. And then there was the royal... Uh, mummification process and the thing is when somebody died it took anywhere from 40 to 70 days to desiccate the corpse in other words they had to be packed in sand to dry it out uh the brain was discarded there was this hook-like object they they'd shove up the the nostrils and pull the brain out the egyptians discarded the brain the other organs were removed and they were dried out and put in jars that are known as canopic jars. The heart, though, extremely important to the Egyptians. They believed that the heart was essentially where the thoughts came from, where the soul resided. So the heart would be removed, especially um, desiccated, dried out in salt, then wrapped in mummy cloth and then put back into the body which other organs were not. So the heart held a very special place. I know I'm going kind of deeply into the mummification process, but I'm glad that you asked that. And here's why. The Egyptians believed that preserving the body was directly tied to the soul's journey into the afterlife. The Egyptians did not believe in reincarnation. They believed in resurrection, So if your body was properly preserved, they believed at some point that body was going to reanimate, come back to life, and that's why the body had to be properly preserved. And for people who fell out of favor with the Pharaoh or who did despicable things, they were not properly mummified or they outright cremated the remains of the person to deny them entry into into the afterlife. Um, if we have time, we can get into some some um, and, uh, some stories about that as well. And that's why when the Romans entered Egypt, um, you brought the Romans. Um, the Egyptians were mortified because the Romans used to bury, uh, not bury, used to burn the bodies of their heroes and of their dead, whereas the Egyptians instead not only preserve them, but build great monuments to them. So I, I, I've got this question. Of course, we're just going to skip over the brain thing for a minute because that's that's whatever that is. But if, <laughs> if, you, think you're, if you think you're going to be resurrected, you've got uh, – I'm looking at my desk right now, Mark. You can't obviously see this, but I'm sure you're familiar. Your desk probably looks the same. You've got stuff strewn across it. And I'm, right. I'm surely about ready to lose something. <laughs> right? <laughs> So right. if, if I if I started taking my uh, my lungs and my you know all this stuff and well, I mean mistakes are made. I mean, wouldn't you be better off just keeping it all inside you? <laughs> yeah, one one would think you know, but you, this process evolved over thousands of years. And the fascinating thing, though, is mummification was going on well into the sixth century A.D. Okay, 600 years after the birth of Christ. The Egyptian religion was very long-lived. It wasn't um, eradicated by Christianity until roughly five centuries after after the, the crucifixion of Christ. And the techniques for mummification 
up through the 6th century AD were uncannily similar to those happening 3,000 years before that in the Old Kingdom. Okay, so again, ADHD, let's get get calm down here. Okay, focus. So we're back, 1822, we're we're hieroglyphics. Now, I understand they're pictures, but how do we start decoding them? Because I thought that would be kind of... Well, difficult, yeah. It seems so self-evident, right? You see a picture right. of an animal, you know it's an animal. But what what animal is it, I guess? So how do we get that figured out? Right. Well, the ancient Egyptian language basically ceased to exist um, in the 6th century AD because as Christianity took over in Egypt, and then uh, two centuries after that, Islam, um, the Islamic armies invaded and then Arabic became the language of Egypt. So for thousands of years, all the way up until the 20th century, or excuse me, the um, the 19th century, uh, hieroglyphs were, were pretty pictures. And archaeologists, Egyptologists knew that they meant something, but they didn't know what they meant. Well, in 1799, Napoleon invaded Egypt. Um, and his, his plan was to seize Egypt and then use it as a base of operations to lead an attack to, on British India, which would go down the Red Sea, he'd get his fleet go through the, uh, down the Red Sea and across the Indian Ocean and to attack British Egypt, uh, British India. Anyway, when Napoleon invaded Egypt, he brought with him all these scholars and archaeologists and they uncovered this stone tablet. And I've seen it. Uh, it's in the British Museum now. And on the stone tablet, there were three different forms of writing. One was ancient Greek. One was uh, known as Demiotic. And Demiotic was a later form of Egyptian. It was sort of like the cursive version of Egyptian. And then the third message uh, was hieroglyphs. Well, the scholars could read the Greek and the Demiotic, and they saw that it, it said the same thing. So they realized, aha, this must have been some type of, of notice in the three languages that were spoken in Egypt at the time. And the Rosetta Stone dates from the Greek period because, I know I'm jumping all over, but um, the Greeks had conquered Egypt under Alexander the Great. In fact, Cleopatra was of Greek origin, and she was the last member of the Greek dynasty ruling Egypt and until it fell to the Romans. And so they knew that the hieroglyphs must have said the same thing, but nobody could figure it out. Well, there was a child prodigy, um, his last name was Champollion, and he got hold of it and worked on it and worked on it. In 1822, he cracked the code and he figured out how to read the hieroglyphs. And so then everything of, with Egyptology changed. Now all the inscriptions on in the tombs, on walls, and the papyruses that had been compiled and discovered over the centuries, now, now scholars could read this. And so this brings us to the New Kingdom and the Valley of the Kings. Archaeologists are, are studying the Valley of the Kings, and they got a chronology of the pharaohs. And they would discover tombs. Okay, this, this is, uh, okay, we found the tomb of Amenhotep III. Okay, we found the tomb of Thutmose. Okay, we found the tomb of Ramses II. But they noticed there was one pharaoh that showed up in the chronology, but no tomb. And Egyptologist after Egyptologist was looking for it, and they couldn't find it. And a young 17-year-old named Howard Carter came to Egypt in the late 1800s, he was English. Um, he was an artist. So he had no formal education in Egyptology, but he learned on the job working for all the Egyptologists. And as an artist, he used to draw uh, pictures of the tombs and he would copy the hieroglyphs, work his way up through the ranks and became by reputation a distinguished archaeologist. And he was obsessed with finding the tomb 
of Tutankhamun. So let's let's pause. Let's 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 regroup for just a second because this is where it gets fun. A young man cracked the code of the hieroglyphs. He, right. He he started as a young man. By the time he figured out Tut, where Tut's tomb was, he wasn't as necessarily as young. And Tut himself was a what nineteen year old kid when he died. Right. Exactly. And and see, this is a very auspicious year because Champollion uh, deciphered hieroglyphs in eighteen twenty two. Tutankhamun's tomb was discovered in 1922, and now here we are in 2022. So this is the 200th anniversary of deciphering um, hieroglyphs and the 100th anniversary of the greatest discovery in the history of Egyptology. And so in the early, in the late 1800s, early um, 20th century, Howard Carter was looking for the tomb of Tutankhamun, but he had no funding because, you know, running an ex- excavation is, it costs a lot of money. And he came into contact with the fifth Earl of Carnarvon. And the fifth Earl of Carnarvon was um, a armchair archaeologist, if you will. He was a British aristocrat and he had some health problems, but he liked spending his winters in Egypt because it was drier. Long story short, he and Carter strike up a friendship, and he starts to fund the expedition. Now, this is no small small venture, Jim. The, uh, Carter had a 100 workers under him, and they were looking for this tomb. And then, of course, World War One starts in 1914, and, and so excavation had to stop until... Uh, um, uh, the um, the British Empire was on the winning side on the Allies, and uh, excavation started back up in 1918. And the thing is, British aristocrats were wiped out during during World War One, um, and Lord Carnarvon wanted to cut the funding to the expedition, and Carter begged him one more season. Please, just one more season. And that brought them up to 1922. And Carter knew that he was running out of time and that this was it. And Lord Carnarvon, as much as he admired and liked Howard Carter, the only thing Carter had produced over um, 20 years was a lot of bills. I can't imagine. I'm just putting myself in those shoes, right? Hey, we've been after this 19 years. But um, one more. I feel I feel good about this. Well, yeah, and I got to talk a little bit about Lord Carnarvon. Um, George Stanhope Molino Herbert was his name, but he was the fifth Earl of Carnarvon, and he came from um, England and he lived in Highclere Castle. Now, I would venture to say, Jim, that you have you ever seen Downton Abbey? A couple. Clips of it. I'm couple, not a big, couple, yeah. I know enough about it to, to see the house in my head when you say it. Exactly. Well, Downton Abbey is filmed at High Clare Castle. And so for all the listeners, whenever you've seen the, the BBC smash hit and they just uh, did two movies on it, it's a melodrama. It's about a bunch of our British aristocrats in the 1920s strapped for cash and how they deal with their servants. Okay, so it's an upstairs, downstairs melodrama. Well, the thing is... Um, Downton Abbey being filmed at Highclere Castle, um, all these scenes with the aristocrats are filmed upstairs, and the downstairs sequences with the servants are not filmed in the basement of Highclere. And the reason for that is because it is rumored the Carnarvon family's private Egyptian collection is concealed in the basement of Highclere Castle. And very few British aristocrats have held on to their family's ancient estates, but now the 8th Earl of Carnarvon, the great-great-grandson of Howard Carter's benefactor, still lives at Highclere Castle. In fact, the TV show Downton Abbey kind of saved their uh, you-know-whats because they made a lot of money, BBC's paying them to film there, and so it looks like the Carnarvon family is going to be comfortable uh, at Highclere Castle for quite some time. 
But meanwhile, back in Egypt in 1922, um, Howard Carter had rented a house um, near the Valley of the Kings. Carter, at age 58, now he was 58 years old, he was a confirmed bachelor, um, and we don't know what his deal was. Was it girls? Was it guys? I, I just think Carter didn't like people. Um, he was obsessive. He, he, he would not give up on, on his task. He was rude to people around him. He couldn't stand whom he considered to be stupid people. He hated the media. Um, he just wasn't really a very pleasant guy. And he was nasty to the staff uh, that work in his home. And he bought this canary, and, he, and, and it was in this little gilded cage. And the canary would sing to him, and it calmed him down. And the staff was like, okay, you know, um, you know, Sahib uh, Carter is happy with this canary. And the canary became the, the mascot of the expedition. In fact, one of the his servants said, Inshallah, which means uh, the will of God, perhaps this canary will lead us to a tomb of gold. And so the expedition became known as the, um, the expedition of the golden bird. Well, it was the morning of November 4th, 1922. Carter lurches awake. It's before dawn. He's getting ready. The little bird is singing to him. And he drives out to to the Valley of the Kings. And when he arrives at the, the site of the dig, nothing's happening. And one of, that meant one of two things had occurred, Jim. That meant either somebody had been killed or they found something. And uh, based off track record, I mean, what do you, what do you, I mean, you obviously got to be thinking somebody was killed. Yeah. Until one of the workers, the, the foreman ran up to him and they said, we found something. They brought him to a location. Now get this. <clears throat> the location they brought him to was right, was in close proximity to the tomb of Pharaoh Ramses the sixth. And this was one of the original areas that Carter wanted to concentrate on, but he was pressured by Egyptian authorities to move elsewhere because the tomb of Ramses VI had such elaborate paintings. It was a big tourist destination, and so Carter's work was in the way. So he start he, he ends up right where he started, and they found a stone step in the sand, feverishly. The workers uncovered another step, another step, another step. And Jim, there was 16 steps leading down into the earth, and it came to a door. Okay, Carter's heart is pounding. He's thinking, well, maybe we found uh, um, some type of storeroom, what's known as a cache. Um, maybe if we did find a tomb, it's going to be another empty tomb. But as they started wiping the, the sand away from the door, his heart almost stopped. Because the double doors to the tomb were sealed by a clay seal uh, across the handles that had that was completely intact, and what that meant, they had never found uh, the entrance to a tomb with the seal intact. Carter knew, and and the knew when he read the the. The name Tutankhamun on the seal, he found it, and it was intact and had not been opened. His heart was pounding, so he immediately ordered um, armed guards, and he raced back to to um, town so that he could send a telegraph to Lord Carnarvon. But meanwhile, Jim, at the same time that they reached the door of the tomb, there was an, at Carter's house, his Egyptian staff heard this terrible shriek and they ran into the living room and in the gilded cage they saw a cobra had slithered in and gotten into the cage and was devouring Carter's canary. Well, you know, I was sitting here thinking about canaries in the coal mines, right? Because back in the day, you'd take a canary down as kind of a gas meter and now you're telling me the canary still bit the dust, even well, this thousands was of a, miles away. <laughs> this was a a very bad omen. And while the Egyptians may have been Muslims, they were also Egyptians, and they knew that the cobras 
a cobra was the symbol of the ancient Egyptian pharaohs. And it was as if the ancient pharaohs were striking down the expedition. So the symbol of the pharaohs was swallowing the expedition's mascot. And this meant evil. This was a bad omen. And let me tell you something. Rumors of this, news of this started flying not through the town, but through the entire dig. So meanwhile, at Highclere Castle, Lord Carnarvon receives a, um, a telegram saying, great discovery found. So it takes uh, Lord Carnarvon and his daughter, Lady Evelyn, three weeks uh, to get to Egypt. You know, this is 1922. It's not like they just hopped on, you know, Egyptian airlines and flew over there. And plus, it takes time. You just don't leave a giant manor house. you got to get everything in order. So now it's November 26, 1922. It's Lord Carnarvon, Lady Evelyn, and Howard Carter, and of course uh, the workers. And they go and they they open the seal to the two two doors, and there's a hallway. And it took an entire day for the workers to clear all the debris, sand, uh, broken pottery out of this hallway, and they came to another set of double doors, and. I need to I need to read Carter's this is from Carter's book The Tomb of Tutankhamun and and so what Carter had done is he made a small hole in the upper left corner of the doorway to insert a candle to test the air inside so he bores a hole in this ancient door and the flame flickered and hot air came out and and Carter realized nobody had breathed this air for 33 centuries and the air, Jim, it smelled faintly of oil and perfume. In his own words from his book, The Tomb of Tutankhamun, Carter described what happened next. For the moment, an eternity it must have seemed to the others standing by. I was struck dumb with amazement. And when Lord Carnarvon unable to stand the suspense any longer, inquired anxiously, can you see anything? It was all I could do to get out the words, yes, wonderful things. That's an, it's incredible. I can't imagine. Okay, let's, let's pause here for a second. I got to refocus this. Waited three, I mean, okay, so you found a door, then you wait three weeks for the guy to show up. <laughs> It's got to be like, right. like a kid on Christmas, right? You've got <laughs> Yeah. And then you get there, and you find the hallway. Right. Sounds like Christmas to me, right? You got that first package, you get the socks. Oh, this and a is sweater. better. <laughs> right? Better than Christmas, yeah. <laughs> and and so here they were, the candle, and he's looking through this hole, and Carter, all he can say is wonderful things. So then Lord Carnarvon and Lady Evelyn took a look, and all their jaws are dropping, Everywhere was the glimmer of gold. The room they peered into was packed with chariots, statues, game boards, linens, jewelry, beds, couches, chairs, even a throne, all piled up on top of one another. And the thing is, Jim, nobody had ever seen anything like this for thousands of years. They were flabbergasted. So, okay, so we open the door, we get all those things. Well, how how do we get all this gold? <laughs> well, the Egyptians looked at gold very differently than we do. Certainly it had value, but they looked at it with a spiritual significance because since gold did not tarnish and it was always shiny, they believed it retained the power of the sun. And there were, I believe, like five different chambers, um, and it took 10 years to get everything out of the tomb. Um, Howard Carter assembled the greatest team. Um, it was the dream team of, of Egyptology. He contacted the Met, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, uh, of course, the British Museum, the Louvre, the Vatican Museum, the German Museum. He had the best of the best there, and it took them until February of, two, uh, of excuse me, of nineteen twenty three to get there. And when they went in, they they numbered each. Um, object, photographed it, made notes where it was, the position it was in before they removed it. Some objects were in perfect shape. 
Um, others, they opened up this one chest and they saw clothing in it, and at touch of a finger, it all crumbled into dust. Uh, another, um, there was a beaded uh, pair of sandals. The beads fell apart, um, and they they hired people to reconstruct, you know, to, to to restring the beads on on a pair of sandals. But the thing is, over five thousand objects were recovered from the tomb. It was, it was close, closer, like fifty uh, three hundred, and you know, we're, we're everyone's intrigued by by treasure. But by the time they got into the burial chamber itself, there was a huge pink sarcophagus, and it had been cracked across the middle over over the centuries, uh, I guess from expansion and and uh, contraction from temperature shifts. It cracked, and so they had to develop an elaborate system of wedges and, and winches and, and pulleys to get it off. Then there was a, a large wooden coffin in the shape of a person, and it was had gold leaf all over it. And they tried to lift it, and it was insanely heavy. And they're like, what is up with this? Well, they opened that coffin, and there was another coffin inside of it, also wooden, also gilded in um, a gold leaf. And then they opened that, and then they couldn't believe what they found next. The third innermost coffin, shaped like a human being, was solid gold, over 250 pounds of solid gold. That's just, that's a lot of gold, Mark. It sure is. And then they thought if that wasn't enough when they opened that and they saw the king's mummy, on the mummy was the famous gold death mask. And that's one of the most recognizable symbols of ancient Egypt is the death mask of Tutankhamun. Um, the hard part was the priests of ancient Egypt, when they they put the mummy in the coffin, they poured um, unguents. Um, um, they they were um, oils and uh, sacred potions all over the mummy. It was all part of the mummification process. Well, for thousands of years, it crystallized and turned into a glue, and so now the mummy was essentially glued into the coffin. And uh, it's horrible, but they had to section the mummy up to get it out. And probably, I mean, it's by today's standards, we would have had chemists that could have figured out how to dissolve this. But long story short, um, when the mummy was eventually removed from from the coffin, it began to cause even more questions. And in recent years, there have been DNA analysis of, of the king's mummy uh, this young man, he was uh, Tutankhamun was about nine years old when he became king. He was roughly 19, anywhere from 18 to 20 when he died. He had a club foot. He had Kohler syndrome, which was a um, uh, deficiency of blood going to the bones uh, as he was growing up. He had traces of sickle cell anemia and malaria in his tissue, this young man was extremely disabled, must have been um, in terrible pain most of his life, and over 120 walking sticks were found in the tomb. So from the time this kid could walk, he was using a cane. And so you had a physically disabled pharaoh, probably in immense um, you know, discomfort. The, this young man had a lot of, of terrible physical deformities. And the thing that really started to mystify them was there was no heart in the mummy. Remember earlier we are talking about how important the heart was. Well, mummies of other pharaohs that had been recovered had the heart in them. So why wasn't the heart there? Then further examination indicated there was a wound on his leg uh, it looks like he may have broken his leg, fractured his leg. There could have been an infection. So did he die in some type of accident, like maybe falling from a chariot, or was he possibly murdered? So this started springing mystery after mystery. Well, the this became the biggest news story in the world, Jim, and I know we, uh, we're running low on time, so let's get to the curse. Every reporter from every major outlet from Tokyo to London to San Francisco was there in force covering the biggest story in the world. Carter hated the reporters, couldn't stand them in their questions. Lord Carnarvon, 
He, he loved being the center of attention. He said, I'll handle the media. <laughs> you handle the excavation. And so at first, everything was fine until, until Lord Carnarvon sold the exclusive rights to the story to the London Times. And with the stroke of a pen, he alienated every media outlet in the world. The reporters were furious, and so they're all looking for a story. Me, And then, of course, they'd heard the tale of the cobra, the symbol of the pharaohs swallowing the canary. So fake news existed back in 1923, and a reporter said uh, that a clay tablet had been found in the tomb with the inscription, Death will slay with his wings whoever disturbs the peace of the Pharaoh. And so now the rumor of the curse starts expanding, but then the real shocker came in April of 1923. Lord Carnarvon is not feeling well, and he drops dead at age 56 in a Cairo hotel. He was suffering from an infection caused by a mosquito bite. And at the precise moment of his death, all the lights in the city of Cairo flickered and briefly went out. Well, now the reporters are going crazy. And then they find out that his dog howled and dropped dead at the same time. So now, all right, the curse is happening. But then by 1929, um, over two dozen people who'd been involved in the excavation of the tomb had died. And a lot of very famous people had come to see um, and, and were invited into the tomb, including American tycoon George J. Gould, British industrialist Joe Wolfe, and British aristocrats Mervyn Herbert and Richard Bethel. All of them dropped dead shortly after visiting the tomb. Then Bethel's father, Lord Westbury, left a funeral note that said, I cannot stand any more horrors. He jumps from a window to his death. And during his funeral, the hearse ran over and killed an eight-year-old boy. Jim, the media was having a field day. People were dying. Stories of the curse were flying. I mean, even Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, author of Sherlock Holmes and a psychic medium himself, suggested that the priests of ancient Egypt had conjured elementals who are non-human spirits to guard the tomb. Other theories started popping up that the ancient Egyptians coated objects in the tomb with long-lasting poisons, lethal microbes, toxic spores, and even radioactive uranium. Let me tell you something. Um... You know, we hear about all the fake news and all the everything going on in the news today. Let me tell you, the, the media today had nothing on what was going on with the curse of Tutankhamun. I mean, this was a sensationalized story. And even Hollywood picked up on it because by 1932, um, Universal Studios produced The Mummy with Boris Karloff. And, and it was funny because I, I watched it the other night. Um, I couldn't sleep, and on uh, one of those Turner movie or whatever, they were playing the Mummy, and it it mimicked so many things. They they kind of had their Lord Carnarvon, they had their Howard Car, they mimicked the actual events of of uh, the discovery of Tutankhamun. So so the discovery of this tomb impacted a lot of people, but the thing is. Not only did it impact people, it, it also, the Art Deco movement, if you look at uh, the Egyptian flavor that uh, Art Deco architecture and, and artwork has, um, fashions in the 1920s, the flappers outfits had a very Egyptian look to it, and Hollywood itself, pop culture, was, was extremely impacted. But the thing is, why did all these people die? Now, it was Egypt in the 1920s. And, and antibiotics were not readily available. It's not like people didn't get yellow fever, malaria, Ebola, typhoid, hepatitis. But why, after entering the tomb, did so many people die so quickly and so mysteriously? Now, Mark, you mentioned we've, we've, we've got 300 pounds of gold over here, um, sitting here. So there has to be all kinds of other things in this tomb. Is it possible that I'm thinking like lead or other things that could be down there that 
may not have been helpful to breathe into? It's possible, but in recent years, people that are handling these objects don't seem to be affected by them. And one of the most disturbing finds, or the most disturbing find, in the tomb were two mummified fetuses. And this perplexed Egyptologists. Um, In recent years, a DNA test was done, and it appears that these were two little, um, the female fetuses, they appear to have been twins, and it looks like Tutankhamun had been their father. So did they die in utero? Were they miscarried by his, his wife, who was also his half-sister, Anka Sanaman? Was this some strange human sacrificial ritual? Uh, chances are they were um, aborted, or not aborted, but um, miscarried fetuses. But that was very, very macabre. And the the curse, you think that the evil spirits really would have gone after Howard Carter, you know, the lead archaeologist. And when the, interviewed, the guy who showed up at the door. Yeah. <laughs> and, and but when interviewed about the curse, um, Carter said, and I'll read his his exact words: "Tommy Rot, the sentiment of the Egyptologist is not one of fear, but of respect and awe, entirely opposed to foolish superstitions." Well, in a way, though. The curse really did get Carter. He lived until 1939. But despite the greatest discovery in the history of Egyptology, he suffered from long bouts of depression. And even though he was the most famous Egyptologist of all time, he was snubbed by British academia for not having university credentials. But perhaps Carter's curse was the relentless, unending media attention, which he abhorred, which he loathed, and reporters hounded him up to the day he died. So maybe there was a curse after all. Okay, Mark, so you mentioned the the two children, so I'm I'm curious, who was next after King Tut? It gets really even better here. His teenage bride, Anka Sanaman, his, his half-sister, and one of the reasons uh, uh, Tutankhamun had so many deformities, he was also the byproduct of generations of, of incest because in ancient Egypt, only a god could marry a god and the royal family were considered deities on earth. Um, but his widow, she was in desperate um, a situation. And we could do almost an entire hour um, on on what happened, but she wrote a letter to the king of the Hittites. The Hittites lived in what is now Turkey, and the Hittite Empire was very powerful. And at times it was an ally; it wasn't an ally, but at times it was friendly towards Egypt, and at times it wasn't. And And we know that she wrote letters to him because roughly a century ago, the Hittite capital city, Hattusis, was discovered and their royal archives were were, um, located. And they found a copy of a letter that Anka Sanaman wrote to the king of the Hittites. And she said, my husband is dead. I have no son. I will not be forced to marry a servant. Send me one of your sons that he may become my husband and king of Egypt. And the Hittites being very meticulous, they kept the response. And basically the king of the Hittites said, well, I'm not so sure. I believe you. I'm paraphrasing. And they found yet a second letter from her saying, I have no son. My husband is dead. Please send me one of your sons. Well, from the records, we find that the king of the Hittites agreed and sent one of his sons, a royal prince of of the Hittite kingdom, uh, to Egypt. But get this, Jim, he never made it. He was murdered on the way to Egypt. And we know from history that right after he was murdered, this tipped off a 20-year war between the Hittites and the Egyptians. Speculation rises. Why was he murdered? Well, number one, um, this was highly unusual for a foreigner to become pharaoh. But 
Tutankhamun's father was the most unusual pharaoh Egypt ever had. We know him as Akhenaten. And Akhenaten basically cut the funding to the high priests of Egypt and um, had the, the religion of Egypt declared to be heresy because the ancient Egyptian religion was polytheistic. They believed in many gods, and Akhenaten believed in one god, uh, the sun, and a very spiritual aspect of the sun. There's some speculation that maybe he's the good pharaoh of the Bible, the one who um, let Joseph the Hebrew um, uh, rose him to the, the position of grand vizier after Joseph interpreted his his disturbing dreams. Um, do you remember the Bible story of uh, which is scripture of the Pharaoh of Egypt was having a recurring nightmare where seven hefty cows emerged from the Nile River only to be devoured by seven scrawny cows. Seven plump ears of corn emerged from the Nile only to be discover, uh, devoured by seven scrawny ears. And nobody in Egypt, none of the, the magicians or the astrologers uh, could interpret this. But in Pharaoh's prison was a Hebrew slave the name of Joseph and his brothers had sold him into slavery in Egypt and uh, Joseph interpreted that to mean that there'd be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. So there's some speculation in biblical uh, archaeological circles that perhaps in some way Joseph influenced a pharaoh who then uh, wanted to suppress and eradicate the the polytheistic religion of ancient Egypt and replace it with his own spin on there is only one God. So it certainly makes for great you know Mallard report discussion. But the thing is, um, after Akhenaten dies, Tutankhamun is now Pharaoh, and at nine years old, the first thing he does is turn back the clock and bring back funding. For the priests of ancient Egypt, right, like a nine-year-old's going to do that. And then not only was Tutankhamun and his dynasty hated by the priests, they're also hated by the military because Akhenaten refused to, to take any military action against the Hittites and other enemies of Egypt. He said, you know, he believed in peace, where the army looked at him as a weakling. So now you have a physically disabled, sickly boy who would not exactly be admired or respected by the military. The priesthood hated his entire family for basically impoverishing them for for over 20 years under the reign of Akhenaten. And then this sickly boy king dies suddenly, either by accident or perhaps a convenient accident, and now his frightened teenage bride is begging for a foreign king to send a son to be a prince. Well, get this. Not only is the prince murdered en route to Egypt, but then we know Ankesanamun married the grand vizier, whose name was I, you know, spelled A-Y. I will not be forced to marry a servant, technically he was the servant and old enough to be her grandfather. I becomes Pharaoh of Egypt, and when his tomb was discovered, it has a list of his wives, not one mention of Ankesanamun. Her tomb has never been found. Her mummy's never been found. She disappears without a trace from the pages of history. Tutankhamun's entire family is eliminated, wiped off the face of the earth, and I becomes Pharaoh, rules for a few years, and when he dies, General Horemhab becomes Pharaoh. And when he died, 18th dynasty ended and the 19th began. So it is very possible that Tutankhamun had been murdered um, and that the the priesthood, the, the religion of ancient Egypt in cahoots with the military essentially staged a coup d'etat, used Tutankhamun's bride to make the grand vizier pharaoh, and then they got rid of her too. So, Mark, we've got 15 seconds free to tell people where they can find you. 
afterlifefrequency.com, just like my uh, new book, The Afterlife Frequency. You can sign up for a reading. Please uh, sign up for my newsletter. And, Jim, I want to thank you so much for letting me come and talk about the curse of Tutankhamun, and I look forward to returning to the Mallard Report. And, everybody, please visit my website, afterlifefrequency.com. I'm Mark Anthony. Please tune in to the Mallard Report with Jim Mallard. Thanks, Mark. Talk to you soon. Hey, I want to thank you for joining us. It's been a good show tonight. I hope you enjoyed it. Take a few moments, subscribe, share, all the fun stuff. You know how to do it. I don't have to tell you. Just uh, be ready for next week. It'll be sooner than you think. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.